Before we get started with this podcast, let me just say that some of the issues raised and some of the text itself is adult in nature. Uh, if you have young children with you, you might want to save this episode for another moment when they're not around. Otherwise, we're going to set off into the last of the metamorphoses. If you are sticking with me, you have got stick to itiveness because we are in the seventh of the evil pouches of the Malabolja of the Circle of Fraud in Inferno, and we are going on with more metamorphoses. Hi, I'm Mark Scarborough. This is the podcast, Walking with Dante, a podcast in which we slow walk passage by passage, and <laughs> seems to be really slow walking, passage by passage through Dante's masterwork, comedy. We are down in, as I already said, the seventh of the evil pouches that make up the giant circle of fraud, the eighth circle of hell. We are way down at Canto 25, and we're at lines 79 through 141. And just as in the previous two episodes of this podcast, we're going to be here for two episodes. This is a long passage, 79 through 141. I want to take it in the same way. I want to look at it in this episode as a passage, and I want to talk to you about its source work, where does it come from, where's Dante getting his ideas, and then I want to have a second episode about the implications of this third metamorphosis. Just to remind you, we had Vani Fucci come on the scene, we had him bitten, we had him incinerated, we had him reconstituted from his ashes, then we passed on, after his vulgar gestures and a centaur arrived, we passed on to a second metamorphosis, which was incredible incredibly complicated in its implications of a serpent, really kind of a lizard, but again, Dante uses the word serpent, a serpent bite a guy and then fuse into him until the two of them became one thing. And now we've got our third metamorphosis amongst the thieves. So let's get to it. Canto 25 lines 79 through 141. Just as a lizard under the heavy lash of the dog star runs from hedge to hedge and glitters like lightning as it crosses the road, just so appeared a flaming little serpent, purple and black like peppercorns. He came right up to the gut of each of the other two. Right at that spot where we get our first food, it fixed itself onto one of them. Then it fell off and stretched out in front of him. The bitten one looked at the serpent, but said nothing. Instead, he just stood planted on his feet, yawning, as if fatigue or a fever plagued him. He held the serpent's gaze, and it held his. Smoke billowed both from his wound and the serpent's mouth. And then the plumes commingled. Let Lucan shut up right now, especially where he talks about the misery of Sibelius and Nasidius. Let him wait to hear what my bow lets loose. Let Ovid shut up in those passages about Cadmus and Arethusa. If his poetry morphs one into a snake and the other into a fountain, I'm not jealous of him in the least, because with two natures facing each other, he never transformed things so that their forms quickly swapped places with their materiality. 
They responded to each other by normative rules. The snake made a fork in its tail, and the wounded guy's feet pulled in together. His calves, then his thighs, stuck together, so tight, in fact, that it was impossible to see a crack between them. Meanwhile, the snake's tail took the shape that the other had lost, and its skin got soft while the others got hard. I saw the man's arms shrink up to their pits, and the two feet of the beast, which were short, lengthened in a reverse way to what the other guy lost. Its back feet then twisted together to become the member that men hide, while the one on the miserable soul became two paws. The smoke enclosed both the one and the other, giving off a new color and making hair grow on the parts of one while it sloughed off the parts of the other. One stood up, the other fell down, but neither of them turned their baleful lanterns from each other, even as their muzzles were changing under them. The one who was erect scrunched up his face toward his temples so that the excess material extruded itself into ears out of his smooth, flat cheeks. The excess material that didn't switch around toward the back made the stuff of the nose on his face and thickened his lips to the right size. As to the one on the ground... His muzzle stretched out, and his ears pulled back into his head, about as the horns of a snail retract. His tongue, which had been in one piece and capable of speech, split itself, and the forked tongue of the other one fused together. That's when the smoke stopped. The one that had become a wild beast fled, hissing down the valley. And the other, who could speak now, spat at that beast. Then he turned his new shoulders toward the third guy and said, My wish is that Buoso has to run as I have had to on all fours in this ditch. Complicated, long Difficult. We're going to take it in lots of different pieces with looks at source work, looks at structure of the passage, all avoiding questions of implication. Let me remind you that Dante and Virgil were silenced by three people coming along. One of them got bitten by that reptile that fused with him into one beast with two backs, as it were. And this reptile now comes after the other two and attacks one of them. So let's start through the passage. It begins just as a lizard under the heavy lash of the dog star runs from hedge to hedge and glitters like lightning as it crosses the road. Just so a flaming little serpent, and it is a diminutive in the Florentine, so a little serpent, purple or livid. I like purple because it has a bruise color to it. The word can be translated as livid, but I don't know how peppercorns are exactly livid unless somehow their smell is livid. I think purple might be a better way to say it. Purple and black like peppercorns. So we get this uh, taste image of this lizard. It's spicy like peppercorns, and it's also withered and bruised and purple and black. It's not very pretty. He came right up to the gut of each of the other two. So they're standing there. Their friend has been turned into one thing from two creatures, himself and a reptile. And now another reptile, a little one, runs out at them. 
We should say something here about the metaphorics in the passage. Unlike the other two metamorphoses, this one begins in metaphoric space. It begins with a metaphor. It begins with the heat of the summer, the heavy lash of the dog star. The dog star, Sirius, which is up, what, late July, early August? So the hottest part of the summer. And you know how lizards are. They run under hedges for shade. When they run across the road, they glitter like lightning. It's interesting here that this metamorphosis starts as the hottest part of the year and we start with a metaphor all the other metamorphoses the other two start with narrative with explaining what's happening in the metamorphosis this one starts off with a metaphor and that's intriguing and if you remember there were three metaphors for each of the other two metamorphoses. There was the O and the I written so fast for Vani Fucci. There was the phoenix coming back from its ashes. And then there was a guy either thrown to the road by a demon or by an epileptic fit, whichever way, standing up and shaking it off. Those were the three metaphors that explained Vani Fucci's metamorphosis. Then there were three more for the second metamorphosis. There was the ivy clinging to the tree like the lizard was clinging to him. There were hot, melty wax blending together as the two of them started to fuse. And there was this notion of burning parchment, remember, and how it turns brown in front of the flame before it chars, but the white is already all gone to explain the kind of transformative nature of the metamorphosis. And those three metaphors for each of those previous two metamorphoses, I know, complicated, right? And those three metaphors for each of the previous two metamorphoses were bound together. They were all happening real close to each other, just in the tercets next to each other as you go down to try to explain what's going on. In this metamorphosis, they're spread out. It starts with the hot summer day, the lash of the dog star and the lizard running across the road. So just like that, this little serpent came out and ran at them. Then later in the passage, the guy stands there yawning as if fatigue or a fever plagued him. Again, another metaphor that is present in the text to explain his attitude. And then late in the text, his ears pull back into his head about as the horns of a snail retract, and, you know, when they're crawling along and you touch them and the, their antenna or horns go back inside of them. That's how his ears were absorbed into his head. They're spaced out. They're not scrunched together and they're woven more, what do we want to say, intrinsically into the passage. We're going to have to save the implications of that for the next episode of this podcast. But it's interesting to note that in this complicated metamorphosis in which a serpent and a man change bodies, as it were, or one becomes like the other in the middle of this smoky mist. It's interesting that the metaphors are spread out in this one. It starts in metaphoric space rather than in narrative space. That's very highfalutin to say, but just let me have it. It starts in metaphoric space rather than narrative space. And they're woven, these metaphors, a little more cohesively into the text rather than just piled up on each other to explain it. Okay, so the little serpent has darted out, has on a very hot summer day, and run toward the two remaining figures standing in the ditch. What happens next? 
Right at that spot where we get our first food, it fixed itself onto one of them. This is a reference to the navel, of course, the place where your umbilical cord is attached, where you get your first food. This is, well, shall we say, a hint about what's going on here. This is a birthing image. And in fact, what's going to follow is a sexually rife and sexually difficult birthing image of a metamorphosis. We'll talk more about that in a minute, but there's a reason why the navel is mentioned here. If you remember, each of the other two metamorphoses have been blasphemous inversions of a piece of theology. Vani Fucci's was a blasphemous inversion of the resurrection. The previous one with Agnello fused with the reptile is a blasphemous inversion of the incarnation. And this is a blasphemous inversion of creation. And we're being told that by the navel, by the creation of a man. Remember in the old biblical text of Genesis, in one of the two creation stories that start Genesis, God creates Eve out of Adam's rib. Eve is created out of something. Now, of course, there are misogynistic implications to this. Of course, there are all kinds of ways that we could dance on this and talk about the notion of women as somehow arising out of men in the biblical story. Of course, of course. But let's just accept the biblical story for a moment and say that Eve is not created ex nihilo. And in fact, here we have a non-ex nihilo creation, or that is a blasphemous inversion of the creation, or to put it even more succinctly, a blasphemous notion of sex. The navel has been bitten, and now we go on. The bitten one looked at the serpent but said nothing. Instead, he stood planted on his feet, yawning as if fatigue and a fever plagued him. There's that second metaphor, as if fatigue were a pla- fever. I actually think he's pulling this from Lucan's Pharsalia. Lucan's Pharsalia is the grand epic that we have already talked about, in which Pompey and Caesar and all kinds of figures fight it and duke it out and end up in the Libyan and Egyptian sands. And Cato ends up running across the sands. And as Cato runs across the sands, Cato encounters the many, many snakes of the Libyan, we might now say Egyptian, but the Libyan desert. In this run across this snake-filled desert, there are these lines in where I'm in book nine of the Pharsalia. I'm at line 815. And then, poor Levis, your blood, invaded by a serpent from the Nile. This is another soldier who's been bitten. Weighs your diaphragm down. Though you notice no pain from the bite, you abruptly black out, then suffer death and descend to your fellow ghosts still fast asleep. I think that this notion that poor Levis has been bitten, he kind of gets drowsy, sleepy, he falls asleep, falls down, and dies. I think that's probably sitting behind this text, because after all, part of this text is going to be derived from Lucan. But 
Let's look on. It's not just yawning, which is a bedtime move, not to push my notion too far, but is a bedtime move. But what else happens? He stands there yawning, and then they hold each other's gaze. He held the serpent's gaze. It held his smoke billowed out from both his wound and the serpent's mouth, and then the plumes of smoke commingled. This is the part in which there is an explicit sexual component holding each other's gaze, staring at each other, and then this commingling, which is the medieval notion of what happens in sex. Without becoming overly graphic, I just want to tell you that most medieval doctors believe that the semen carries the spirit and that when the semen is impregnated, when a woman is impregnated by a man, part of what happens is the semen carries the spirit into the woman that then invades the already forming fetus in there to create a human being. And this notion here that there is smoke, which is like a spirit, is often used as a metaphor for spirit that is pouring out of both of them for medieval medical knowledge, they would hear much more of the sexual reverence here. You can hear it by the way that the two of them stand staring, locked eyes at each other. But I want to tell you that there's more to it. And that more sexual reference in it is what helps us see that this is a blasphemous inversion of creation. This is where it gets daring. Let Lucan shut up right now, especially where he talks about the misery of Sibelius and Nasidius. Let him wait to hear what my bow lets loose. Dante is making reference again to the Pharsalia, still in book nine, but slightly earlier. And this is a story of two of Cato's soldiers as they race across the desert who get bitten by snakes. And I'd like to read you this passage from the Pharsalia, book nine. I'm at line uh, 761 to 804. It's a rather long passage, but I'd like to read it to you so that you can hear it. This is the translation by Jane Wilson Joyce, uh, and you can hear where Dante is getting part of what he's doing here. Cato is running across the desert, and then it sets in. Grimmer yet was the death before their eyes, a tiny fester fastened on wretched Sibelius's shank. As it clung with its barbed fangs, he wrenched it off and pinned it to the sands with his lance. A little serpent indeed, but no other packs so much murderous death, for right around the puncture... The skin burst, pulled back, and laid the pink bones bare. Then, as the canker widened, there seemed to be raw wound with no body. His legs swam with bloody pus. His calves melted. His knees were stripped of their covering. Every thigh muscle liquefied, and his groin ran with black muck. The membrane binding his belly dissolved and his guts flooded out. His whole body, what's left of it, soaked away into the dirt. The savage venom cooked his flesh down. Death shrank it all to a puddle of toxin. All that a human being is, 
the poison's profaning nature laid bare, the ropes of nerves and the lungs webwork, the chest cavity and what vital organs hide, death displays all, the shoulders dissolved and the strong arms, neck and head melted, no faster with a warm south wind does thawed snow vanish, does wax succumb to sunshine. It's right there that we can see that Dante is playing with the nature of identity. He mentions Sibelius in this passage. He mentions this very story in which Sibelius is bitten by some serpent on the Libyan sands and liquefies. And it's those bits, all that a person is, dissolves. This is what Dante's playing with, because in this case, in the metamorphosis that follows, all that a person is does not dissolve. Rather, it changes places. Dante also mentions Nasidius, who is also in this passage. This is what happens to Nasidius as he gets bitten by a snake. But see, there looms a demise, the reverse of seeping death. Nasidius, plowman from, the, from a Marcian farm, is struck by a hot lightning snake. Fiery redness flares in his face, swelling stretches his skin, blurring every feature. Features vanish everywhere over his limbs, and they already are larger than his whole body, exceeding human scale. Corruption puffs up as the venom spreads. The man disappears, sunk down in his bloated flesh. His breastplate fails to contain the bulge of distended chest. Wow, this is really gross. Frothing foam does not billow forth like this when a pot of salted water boils over, sailcloth in a gale bellies its folds less grossly. Soon the swollen limbs surpass the weight of shapeless head and torso combined. This is a banquet untouched by birds. One no wild beast will taste unharmed. The men dare not entomb him, not before his girth stops growing. They flee the still-blowing-up corpse." I mean, listen, this is quite a disturbing story about a soldier who gets bitten by a snake and essentially expands and expands in a Willy Wonka blueberry kind of way, expands and expands until he uh, is just absolutely disgusting and unrecognizable as a person. And that's the Lucan connection here to the Pharsalia, the notion of recognizability as a human, all that a person is. And yet Dante's metamorphosis, this one that he tells Lucan to shut up over, this one leaves a person intact, just changed in their places. But there's another reference to a classical poet. The next three lines say, let Ovid shut up in his passages about Cadmus and Arethusa. If his poetry morphs one into a snake and the other into a fountain, I'm not jealous of him in the least. I'd like to just talk to you about these in reverse order. I'd like to start with Arethusa. The story of Arethusa is found in Ovid's Metamorphoses in Book 5, lines 572 through 641. Arethusa is trying to escape from Alpheus. She prays to be able to find some kind of a mistake, uh, escape from him. There's a rape threat in the passage. She gets turned into a stream when the gods hear her prayer. Unfortunately, he gets turned into a river. 
Then he tries to join her as the river tries to join the stream. There's still a rape threat running underneath it. And she, in the mercy of the gods, falls through the soil and down to the underworld below to escape him. The descent to hell of Arethusa is clearly part of what's going on inside of this reference to it inside the Inferno, but we also have this notion again of a kind of sexuality of uh, Alpheus chasing Arethusa, trying to find her to rape her, trying to find her, not being able to once she becomes a stream, but then him morphing himself into a river, and then again trying to co-mingle with her, and she finally escapes into hell. There's a lot of implications going on there. The escape into hell. But we're going to save that for the next time. Now let me do the other figure with Ovid is supposed to shut up for. And that's Cadmus. Cadmus, that story, is found in Metamorphosis 4 at lines 563 to 603. And I'd like to read you that story too. Because that story is incredibly important to this passage. This is the story of Cadmus. And let me just read it to you. I'm reading it to you out of the Rolf Humphreys translation. And here's what it says. Overborne with sorrow and one misfortune after another, conquered by all the portents he, that is Cadmus, had seen, he, Cadmus, left the city he had founded. That city is Thebes, by the way. Left the city he had founded as if luck, not his own fate, oppressed him, and he wandered long with his queen until they reached Illyria. They were sad and old, and they kept talking over the troubles of their house. Was that a serpent slain by my spear so long ago, asked Cadmus, when I was fresh from Sidon? Did I sow a serpent's teeth in the ground to generate new men? If this is what the gods are angry over, may I become a serpent with a body stretched full length forward. You know where this is going. Even as he spoke, he stretched out full length forward, felt his skin harden, the scales increased, the mottled markings sprinkled across his blackening body. He fell forward, crawled on his belly with his legs behind him, drawn in and tapering. He still had arms and tried to reach them forward. His cheeks were human. Tears ran down them as he cried, Come nearer, my poor dear wife, where there is something left for you to come to. Come and touch my hand before I have no hand. I'm holy serpent. He wanted to say more, but found his tongue suddenly forked. Instead of words, a hissing spoke his lament. Nature had left him nothing save this one power. She beat her breast. Oh, Cadmus, unhappy man, she cried. Remain. Put off this horrible Appearance. What is this? Where are your feet, your shoulders, your hands, your complexion, all of you? Why not transform me also, gods of the heavens, into another serpent? He licked her face, glided between her breasts as if he knew them, twined around her neck, while all who stood there watching shook in horror. But the queen only stroked the serpent neck, crested but smooth, and suddenly... There were only two serpents there, entwined about each other and gliding after a while to a hiding place in the woods. This clearly is the closest passage to what this metamorphosis is, especially with all the reference to body parts. And again, let me just underscore that that Cadmus passage is very sexual. By the time he's a serpent and he's gliding between her breasts, there are all kinds of sexual overtones 
on it. This is the problem. Humans cannot create ex nihilo. That means out of nothing. It is the single most consistent attribute of the Judeo-Christian God. The Judeo-Christian notion of God is that God can create something out of nothing, whereas humans must create something out of something. And so our sexuality is not creating something out of nothing, but something out of something, because only God can create something out of nothing, ex nihilo. If we find sexuality throughout this passage, and we find some kind of weird, funky eroticism in this passage, we shouldn't be surprised because we're looking at a passage that is blasphemously inverting how humans create. Not only because, yes, it pains me to say these are two men who are doing this creative act, pains me. Wish Dante were more open to my kind of person, but okay, pains me to say it. But also because this smoky recreation of the two of them is a swapping of natures rather than a making of a new thing, which is the procreative act, even if it is creation from something, not from nothing. Wow, a lot to say, right? So let's look at the metamorphosis itself. In the passage itself, Dante expands a great deal on Ovid. That Cadmus story that I just read you, it basically mentions five things that change on Cadmus. His skin, then his legs, then his arms, then his cheeks, then his tongue. Dante's is much larger. It's his feet, then his legs, then his skin, then his arms, then his penis, then his hair, then his ears, then his nose, then his tongue. Dante expands the catalog of bodily parts significantly from Ovid's story of Cadmus turning into a serpent. Let me just read this through and just watch how it goes. They responded to each other by normative rules. So what happened to one happened in inverse to the other. The snake made a fork in his tail and the wounded guy's feet pulled in together. His calves and his thighs stuck together so tight, in fact, that it was impossible to see a crack between them. So see, we've gone from feet to legs. Meanwhile, the snake's tail took the shape that the other had lost, and its skin, now we've moved on to skin, got soft while the others got hard. I saw the man's arms shrink up to their pits, so his arms are disappearing up into him, and the two feet of the beast, which were short, so these little lizard legs, lengthened in a reverse way to what the other guy lost. Its back feet then twisted together to become the member that men hide. That's the penis. So its back feet fuse together and twist together and become this new person's penis, while the one on the miserable soul, that is the guy's penis, divides in half to become two paws. Notice the 
bestial nature of humanity either being occluded or being revealed. The smoke enclosed both the one and the other, giving off a new color, making hair. Now we're at the hair grow on other parts of one while it sloughed off the parts of the other. One stood up and the other fell down. You notice Dante delays that. In the Ovid story of Cadmus, it happens very fast, but Dante delays it, and the standing up and falling down happen late in the transformation. Neither of them turned their baleful lanterns from each other. What he means here is eyes, lanterns, the light of the soul, the baleful lanterns from each other. They still are staring directly in each other's eyes. Even as their muzzles were changing under them, the one who was erect scrunched up his face toward his temples. Now we're up to the ears so that the excess material extruded itself into ears out of his smooth flat cheeks. The excess material did, that didn't switch around toward the bat made the stuff of his nose on his face. And you should just know in the Florentine, there's a play on Ovid's name, Publius Ovidius Naso, nose, Naso. There's all kinds of playing on Ovid's name in this text. We'll come back to that in the next episode of the podcast. So the nose on his face thickened his lips. This is the one on the ground. His muzzle stretched out. His ears pulled back into his head. And here's our metaphor. As the horns of a snail can retract. Again, more deftly woven into the passage. His tongue, and Dante ends at tongue just like Ovid does. His tongue, which had been in one piece and capable of speech, split itself and the forked tongue of the other fused. That's when the smoke stopped. In other words, the speech element, that which causes you to be able to make language and make yourself understood, is the final stop of the transformation. We have watched a similar transformation from Cadmus in Ovid, except, as Dante is at pains to tell us, Ovid did it with one person. Ovid did not do it with two people staring at each other and swapping their nature. Cadmus just turns into a snake. Here in this passage, these two guys do more than that. They change places with each other, and therefore Dante is making the claim that he can outdo Ovid, and it all comes down to the organ that lets you use language. Wow, so many implications, right? But let's hold and let's go and look at the end of the passage. The one that had become a wild beast fled hissing down the valley, so language is destroyed. And the other who could speak now spat at the beast. Again, language is destroyed. Now the guy that has the mouth that can talk, the first thing he does is spit. Now there's a reference here to medieval folklore and to medieval medical knowledge, and some people believed apparently in the Middle Ages, that human saliva was venomous to snakes in the same way that snake venom was venomous to humans. Of course, that's not true. But there's apparently some medieval folkloric and medical knowledge about that. Um, That may be what's happening here. He's spitting at the snake to make it run away, or this is a lizard. But again, Dante uses the word serpent to mean all of these things. But we should just note that in any case... This final bit of the fusing of the tongue is so important that Dante the Poet underlines it for us to tell us that one of them hissed and one of them spit, but so far neither of them has said a word, at least until the final lines. Then he turned his new shoulders toward the third guy and said, My wish is that Buoso has to run, as I've had to run, on all fours in this ditch. This 
is why we surmise that Chianfa was the reptile who fused with Agnolo. Remember the three guys walk along and they say, where is Chianfa? And then this reptile darts out and bites, who is apparently Agnolo, and that uh, that metamorphosis of the fusion of two people take place. Okay, clearly here's a reptile that has been able to change places with a guy, and this reptile that changed places clearly used to be a human being. This is why most scholars think that that reptile that darts out at them in the past metamorphosis is indeed Chianfa, who they say, where is Chianfa? However, I'm going to hold my point that you can't prove it. You can say it is. You can say it is most likely the case. But at the same time, I'm going to also tell you that it still seems to sit there as an unanswered question that you have to back answer from the passage. It still sits there as not necessarily a completely sure answer. And furthermore, these are the thieves. Where in the world is any theft here? Except identity? Is that the theft? If it's identity, then we're really bumping up into some implications. I mean, how would I know if I read this metamorphosis, which is beautifully done in poetic language, how would I know that these were thieves? How would I know that anything happened here related allegedly to the fraudulent sin of theft? How am I supposed to know that? I know that Vanifucci stole church sacred objects. Am I supposed to just keep inferring forward? Is that the revelation of the pit? So many questions. So highly debated here. He says, my wish is that Buoso has to run. It is so highly debated who Buoso is. Most scholars these days kind of have come to a consensus understanding, but I want to tell you it is a consensus. You cannot pin down who this is, Buoso, this poor guy who's now been turned into a reptile who runs along the pit. Identity is the problem in the seventh pit. It remains intrinsic to what is going on in this pit of fraud. Yes, theft, perhaps, because Vanifucci confesses to his crime of theft. But at the same time, identity theft seems to be the heart of the matter. Let's read the passage one more time. Just as a lizard under the heavy lash of the dog star runs from hedge to hedge and glitters like lightning as it crosses the road, just so appeared a flaming little serpent, purple and black like peppercorns. He came right up to the gut of each of the other two. Right at that spot where we get our first food, it fixed itself onto one of them. Then it fell off and stretched out in front of him. The bitten one looked at the serpent but said nothing. Instead, he just stood planted on his feet, yawning as if fatigue or a fever plagued him. He held the serpent's gaze, and it held his. Smoke billowed out from both his wound and the serpent's mouth, and then the plumes commingled. Let Lucan shut up right now, especially where he talks about the misery of Sibelius and Nasidius. Let him wait to hear what my bow lets loose. Let Ovid shut up in those passages about Cadmus and Arethusa. If his poetry morphs one into a snake and the other into a fountain, I'm not jealous of him in the least, because with two natures facing each other, he never transformed things so that their forms quickly swap places with their materiality. 
They responded to each other by normative rules. The snake made a fork in its tail, and the wounded guy's feet pulled in together. His calves, then his thighs, stuck together so tight, in fact, that it was impossible to see a crack between them. Meanwhile, the snake's tail took the shape that the other had lost, and its skin got soft while the others got hard. I saw the man's arms shrink up to their pits, and the two feet of the beast, which were short, lengthened in a reverse way to what the other guy lost. Its back feet then twisted together to become the member that men hide, while the one on the miserable soul became two paws. The smoke enclosed both the one and the other, giving off a new color and making hair grow on the parts of one while it sloughed off the parts of the other. One stood up, the other fell down, but neither of them turned their baleful lanterns from each other, even as their muzzles were changing under them. The one who was erect scrunched up his face toward his temples, so the excess material extruded itself into ears out of his smooth flat cheeks. The excess material that didn't switch round toward the back made the stuff of the nose on his face and thickened his lips to the right size. As to the one on the ground, his muzzle stretched out and his ears pulled back into his head about as the horns of a snail retract. His tongue, which had been in one piece and capable of speech, split itself and the forked tongue of the other fused together. That's when the smoke stopped. And the one that had become a wild beast fled hissing down the valley, while the other, who could speak now, spat at the beast. Then he turned his new shoulders toward the third guy and said, My wish is that Buoso has to run, as I've had to do, on all fours in this ditch. That is a complicated passage, a passage worthy of things ahead of us in Purgatorio and Paradiso. It deserves a second episode so that we can think through some of the wild implications of this passage itself. Please subscribe to this podcast, rate it. I see that many of you come from around the world, from the Netherlands, from Sweden, from the UK. Thank you very much for listening to this podcast, not just in North America, but even at other locations around the world. You can find me on Twitter under my own name, Mark Scarborough, not Scarborough like the fair, but Scarborough. You can hashtag any comment, Walking with Dante, and I can find you that way. You can also find my website, markscarborough.com, and connect with me there. And come back next time. We got so much to talk about. Oh my God. How much could we possibly have to talk about in this third metamorphosis in the pit of the thieves? I'm Mark Scarborough, and this is Walking with Dante. Walking with Dante.